Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Saddle for yet another episode. Mr. Michael Vecchione, who has been on here a million times, will be on here a million more. He has some books. In the, oh, it's finally 2022, so your book will be out this spring, I believe, or early yes, summer. Yes, it will. I'm, I'm, spring, the way it looks right now. Homicide is my business, and um, hopefully we're going to have a few podcasts to talk about the uh, talk about the book when it comes out. It's a bunch of good stories in there. Hell yeah. So, and your other books, uh, Friends of the Family, uh, Crooked Brooklyn, Behind the Murder Curtain. We've gone over all of those. Uh, I believe one of them is on Audible, two, and then all of them are on Kindle. I'll put those in the description, as always, as well as the short stories. And um, But for all the new listeners who – because actually, even though I always say for all the new listeners, I did quadruple my subscriber base over Christmas break. So for actually – thank you. For all of the new listeners – Mr. Vecchione, please introduce yourself and tell them a little about yourself. Well, you just heard my name. I was uh, the chief of the rackets division in the Brooklyn DA's office from twenty third from two thousand and one, right before nine eleven, until I retired in twenty thirteen, when my boss, the district attorney, lost an election. So um, the new DA was not interested in keeping you know people around, particularly someone like me. I had been there for a lot of years and. Um, I knew where all of the uh, where all of the bones and bodies were buried, so there was no way I was staying. And um, and I retired before he could fire me because I knew it was coming. So, um, but uh, those, I guess, uh, almost thirteen years in the rackets division were a um, were, were terrific, terrific years. I, I did. I did a lot of good work there, if I do say so myself. And um, and now that I that I have I see in the news, you know, the crooked politicians and the you know some crooked judges and people who are taking or on to take. I, I think that um, you know the work that I did back in those years um, was the kind of precursor to this stuff. I, I mean, I put away three Supreme Court judges, um, a couple of very very powerful politicians in New York. Um, and, um, and that was in between the, uh, you know, the mobsters and, the and, and other things that I did and all of it is outlined. I'll give myself an unabashed uh, plug in Crooked Brooklyn. So, um, and for your listeners, they know that we have covered a lot of the stories in Crooked Brooklyn. Um, and the one we're going to talk about today, I didn't include because it actually happened before I was uh, chief of rackets. It was, um. I was uh, chief of the Homicide Bureau before I went over, over to Racket. So this was a case that uh, that came to me um, when I was when I was chief of Homicide. So um, and it was a case that, um, you know, kind of interested me as soon as the detectives came in and asked me about taking it. So um, for for something like today's uh, well, before that, I was going to say for everyone that uh, maybe gets tired of episodes of you know, me talking to doctors and trying to be an optimist about the outcome of the world or, you know, talking about uh, the importance of patriotism and hard work. If you ever want to just tune in for uh, rape and murder, extortion and uh, moving drugs and human trafficking, 
you come on down to the Mike Vecchione corner because that's what this is for. We put we get rid of the sunshine and we go into all right. So her body was burned and thrown on a on the corner of a bridge, and which is one of the stories we did. But but seriously, that's that's I, that's why in a messed up way I enjoy talking to you is because it's it's I I get pulled down from my ethereal. I'm like everything has a silver lining, and I mean you talk about I mean truly like the devil in Brooklyn, and it's like yep. it's, it's very yep. real and. So with today's, just how often is a cold case reopened and kind of successful? Was this a was this a mixture of luck? Was it a mixture of the new guy coming in and being inspired by the woman or the mother? What what? How often is a cold? I guess we'll get to that okay. later on. But to answer to answer those questions, the answer is yes to all of them. In this case, it was a mixture of a a mother who could not let the murder of her son go un, uh, uninvestigated and uninvestigated uh, to the fullest. It was a mix. And adding to that mix were, uh, were the new detectives who were assigned by the new police commissioner who attended a meeting with the new mayor of New York City and um, and opened it up to the, the citizens of a of a an area of Brooklyn called Bay Ridge to, um, to kind of tell them about things that, that bother them and what they wanted addressed. The new mayor was David Dinkins and the new police commissioner was a guy named Ray Kelly, who you might have, your listeners might, might know if they are certainly people who follow law enforcement and, and are in New York uh, city. He was, um, he was one of the best police commissioners we ever had. And when Dinkins became a uh, mayor, he brought, uh, uh, he brought Kelly to um, just about every precinct in the city to um, hear out the public's problems, the public's gripes, uh, things the public wanted uh, the police department to to look at. And um, and when they got to Bay Ridge, um, they were uh, they encountered um, Mrs. Checkett, who is the mother of the person who was murdered in this case. And um, and I have to tell you, first of all, I think I need to describe a little bit about what Bay Ridge is. Bay Ridge is a sort of like a bedroom community in in a big city. It's um, it's near the uh, near the, the the Verrazano Bridge, which is the bridge between Brooklyn and and Staten Island. It's it's not far from the water, um, and it is a, it is a neighborhood of both apartment buildings and private homes. Um, it also has a terrific um, uh, nightlife uh, area to it with restaurants and, and bars. And, um, and it's, it's mostly inhabited by cops, firemen, um, and other, uh, you know, other public servants. So um, what is, that's where this incident occurred. What does bedroom community mean? Well, that, um, you know, it's not like the middle of Manhattan. It's okay. a place where okay. you work, as a cop, and then you go home to bed in your home in Bay Ridge, or you know, you work in, in a big office building in uh, on Wall Street, and then you when the home. day is over, you go home to you know to this to this nice, quiet, tree lined, mostly tree lined neighborhood. You know, Wolf, so Wolf of um, Wall Street, right? The 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 girl he has the affair with, right? The Duchess of is that right? The Duchess of Bay Ridge. Yeah, yeah, the Duchess. Right, yeah. right, Sorry. right. That's that, yeah. that's it. Yeah. So. Um, so Chet Chester, his real name, everybody called him Chet. Um, Chet Checkett 
was, um, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about him and then we'll get back to his mom. So Chet Checkett was basically the prototypical all-American boy in Bay Ridge. He was, um, he went to grammar school there. He went to high school there. He went to college even in Brooklyn. I think he went to Brooklyn College. And, um, and he, was a, um, he was a star football player at his high school. And he was the kind of guy who everybody loved, you know, particularly the moms who, who were friends of, of Mrs. Checkett. They loved Chet. He was a guy who was always friendly to them, who would volunteer his time to go to the store for them. He was, he was just, you know, if there is such a person, the typical, prototypical, all-American boy, so to speak, who was perfect, yeah. except that he wasn't perfect. Yeah. Um, Check it was a drug dealer. Um, when, he, um, when he got out of college, he became a stockbroker. And uh, began to his his career on Wall Street, and uh, you know when I said before about people who work in the big buildings in, in Manhattan, he was one of those guys. He worked on Wall Street, and every night he went home to Bay Ridge to his family and friends. But uh, he was a drug dealer. He um, he sold cocaine, he sold heroin, and he was selling it to not only his his Wall Street cronies because that was the time that. You know, that Wall Street was in, you talk about Wolf of Wall Street. This was, you know, the the, the 80s and um, and it was it was in the middle of of that. Exactly correct. So he sold not only to all of the people in his um, sphere of of influence, the people he contacted, connected with on Wall Street. But when he came back home, he was selling to, you know, to all of the people he knew in his in his neighborhood. Bay Ridge has tons of bars and clubs, and um, and he was he was active in all of them, and he was active not only in 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 drinking and having fun, but he was also active in that he was selling to people in these clubs. The problem was Chet was selling uh, in a territory in Bay Ridge that belonged, quote unquote, to two soldiers of the Gambino crime family. Their names were Joe Stasio and Frank Sapinaro. And um and and they they they're just, did such, not gen- like, they're just such generic names, sorry. <laughs> they did not like the um the 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 uh the the, the competition that Chet and his uh, his his drug dealing was providing uh, or was you know operating against them. And uh, just to go back to the names, so that you would laugh a little bit more, Joe Stasio was called Joe Beef, <laughs> and Frank Sapinero was called Frankie Sap. So it's um, <laughs> and I'm not making any. I know of this you, up. I know you're not. That's so why when, I'm laughing. When and if I ever did a movie on, yeah. So. So anyway, Frankie Sapp and Joe Beef had many conversations with um, with with Check. They said basically, stop selling on our on our territory. Otherwise, you know something's going to happen. You know, and he he basically felt these guys will never do anything to me because now, of course, I'm I'm extra, I'm kind of assuming that that's what he would say. But I did learn from certain people that after we we got into the case, who knew him and them. That his attitude was, you know, basically, fuck them. They're not going to do anything to me because who's how are they going to touch, you know, the uh, the fair haired boy of Bay Ridge? They'll you know, they'll be they'll be, you know, knocked down themselves by all the people who live here. 
Well, little did he know that they didn't give a damn about, you know, all-American boy Chet Checkett. Um, and here's what their plan was. It was very simple. And, it, and, and he kind of played into, the, into their plan. He had a car that he was looking to sell. And he had advertised it in all the local Bay Ridge newspapers. And, and believe it or not, uh, Tommy, there are several of them in Bay Ridge, local papers. And they cover not only Bay Ridge, but the neighboring community of Bensonhurst and, and uh, Diker Heights. All of these neighborhoods are kind of contiguous with one another out in that section of Brooklyn. And, um, and he advertised this car. I was not having much luck selling it. until one day he gets a call from someone who says, I, I want to look at your car. I'm really interested. I, I'm looking to buy it. So Chet set, check it sets up a, a, a meeting with them. He says, my car is parked with the buyer. Um, my car is parked in a particular area of Bay Ridge. Now, this particular area was even more um, suburban-like than the rest of the, the of the area. It was a very it was a a, a, a residential street, lots of trees, um, some street lights, but not as many. You know, it, it was it, it it could be you know a street in the middle of um, you know Iowa somewhere, right? Quiet sure. street with, with lots of trees and, and few street lights. So. Um, the meeting was set for, I forgot what time it was. It was probably around 10 o'clock. And, um, and Checker drives his car there, and he gets out, and he waits. And the reason I know what happened next is because there are witnesses on the street who heard and saw some things. They, um, they saw originally saw the car that was parked there, and, and you know they didn't have any idea what was going on. But then they heard several gunshots. And one particular individual, one particular guy who was, happened to be on the street after the gunshots, he looked over at the car and he noticed that the passenger side door of the car was open and he noticed the body at, on the ground at the, near the passenger side door. And he also noticed that there was a guy walking away from the, from the, the street onto the sidewalk. and With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, motion sounds something like this. Kizik helps you experience the magic of motion. With over 200 patents and easy on, easy off technology, you'll never have to touch your shoes again. There are hundreds of styles and colors, plus a squish like nothing you've ever felt. For a limited time, get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Coming towards him, they passed each other on the street. And the witness, I'll call him the witness, went over to the car and realized now that there's a dead body there. And, and that started the investigation. Um, cops came, and it turns out that basically Check It, looking to sell his car, provided a perfect opportunity for his, his murderers to do this in an area where there weren't going to be many witnesses. And except for that particular guy, there were going to be no witnesses. Now, he plays a big role in ultimately bringing these guys to justice, and I'll get to that in a, in a few minutes. Um, so the police now start their investigation. They, um, they, are, they do find, I'm sorry, the, the guy who was the quote-unquote witness, he sticks around. So when the detectives gets there, he get there, he tells them what he saw. And they, um, they, they say, okay, did you 
get a good look at the guy. And he said, I did. He passed right by me. I looked him right in the face and, um, you know, and I, and, and he went on his way. I think they, I think he got into a car and took off. I don't, I don't remember exactly what happened. So the, the cop said, okay, come back to the, we're going to bring you back to the, to the police station and we're going to call the police artist and you're going to make a sketch of, of, uh, of the person you saw. First they asked him, do you know the guy? He said, no, I don't know. I don't, I don't know who he is. So he goes back to the police station and, uh, they do a sketch and, um, and, and I have to tell you, I'll skip ahead, but I have to tell you that when the subject of that sketch was actually arrested, the sketch was almost as good as a photograph. It was uncanny. Oh, was it, it was unbelievable. I'm going to make a note of that right now on my phone. I was going to ask you, but I didn't want to interrupt if you could put me in touch with like a, a sketch person, because I've seen those before and they're kind of crazy how close yeah i'm gonna i will i'll ask some of my cop friends they can do that yeah absolutely make a note right now thank you yeah so um so now the cops at least have a sketch but the sketch takes them nowhere they interview other people they interview people who know check it and of course keep in mind nobody in his circle of family or friends had any clue that he was dealing drugs no one so um they weren't, so they weren't looking in those circles. They concluded, and this is what they looked for for the next several years in trying to solve this case. Someone who had attempted to rob Check It and it was unsuccessful. That's what they were looking for, a thief, because they had no idea that he was a, he was a drug dealer. So years go on, go by. And um, as I said before, David Dinkins becomes the mayor of the city of New York. He succeeds Ed Koch. And one of the things that he does is appoint Ray Kelly, who was a, a police captain. He was a Marine. Um, he was, he's a guy who, who was a terrific um, police and law enforcement official. And he makes some police commission. And they go to the Bay Ridge Precinct. Um, and... <laughs> And they, they had this meeting. And in the and the and Mrs. Checkett, who had been in contact with the detective who had been originally assigned, um, was unhappy to, to say the least, at the lack of progress in the investigation. She would call the other detective, if not daily, weekly. She would she'd go to the precinct to speak to him. She she just made a, um, if you want to call it this, made a pest of herself. She just, she just kept on their backs and didn't make a difference because it wasn't going anywhere. Yeah. You know, you can't make, as I'll say, you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. It doesn't, it just doesn't work. Yeah. So, um, so, and, and I have to tell you also that she and her husband had broken up. They were divorced. Chet had a, had a sister. Um, so that was basically the family, but she went to the, to the meeting with a friend of hers sat in the first row and after the mayor and the new police commissioner did their little spiel, um, they asked for questions and Mrs. Checkett raised their hand and went on to tell Ray Kelly and David Dinkins all about her wonderful son, the all-American boy, the the, the football hero, the, the stockbroker, the, the guy that everybody in Bay Ridge loved. He was, you know, he, he did charity work. He did everything. And how he was murdered by somebody, by a thief who tried to steal his car 
while he was trying to sell it. And she said that the detectives have gotten nowhere. And she was angry. She was frustrated. She did all of the necessary. She said all the necessary things to get Ray Kelly to commit to a having the commander of the precinct reopen the case and commit. And he committed to having the commander pick the two best detectives assigned to the detective squad of that precinct. Certainly not anybody who had worked on the case before, two new people to now work on this case. One of the detectives was a, a terrific friend of mine. And, um, and, and I, I had gotten to know him very, very kind of tangentially on another case, but he knew of me more than I knew him when he first came to me. And, uh, and I was chief of, uh, chief of the homicide bureau. So he walks in, Tommy Dades is his name. He walks in one, one afternoon with, um, uh, with his partner, Mike Galetta. So that's the, those are the two detectives. And um, Dades is, is, is Greek, but he could have gotten off the, uh, the wise guy boat from Little Italy, you know, that, and, and Galetta was a very, was also, was, was just a great, you know, kind of, he was the calming influence of the, of the, the two, you know. Anyway, Tommy Dades explains what happened to me, what happened and, uh, and what he needs. And, um, and I say, look, you know, okay, you know, I know, understand. And uh, he said, uh, you know, I'll be back. I said, okay. Because they had nothing. They had nothing. They just had two new detectives working on the case. So I said, listen, you know, you have nothing. So there's really no reason for you to, you know, to be here. So anyway, the investigation continues. <laughs> they have, they, they get nowhere, Tom, nowhere. Until one day, a low-life drug dealer from Bay Ridge gets picked up by the uniform cops in the same precinct where Checkett was killed. And um, his name was Marco Ingrio. And he, <laughs> he made an impression on me later on when I found out that across his back, he had stenciled the name or the word Bensonhurst for the neighborhood that he, that he came from. And Bensonhurst was a notorious, a notorious place. Um, the neighborhood where in the friend of the family, where they pick up the, where the, the cops pick up the, the, the guy that they kill, this guy, Jimmy Heidel, who tells them all about how, um, Gas pipe castle gets gets shot at. Anyway, so I don't know if it's so because I've barely, I don't know if it's because I've barely slept in the last two nights. Is, Sorry, it just broke up. Mike, you there? Yeah, I'm here. Right. I don't know if it's because I've barely slept in the last two nights. <laughs> Often, I know we've gone over gas pipe and everything, but it's just all the fucking names. It's just hitting me. Just, I mean, how yeah. art really yeah, yeah. does imitate life. Sorry, keep going. Yes, but oh yeah, it does. It does. Anyway, so imagine a guy having Bensonhurst st- uh, tattooed across his back. That was Marco. Sure. So he was, and he was a big mouth. He was a guy who thought that you know, you ever? I don't know if you heard ever heard the expression um, that this guy thought that his shit didn't stink. Yeah. Well, that was yeah. that was the guy. You know, he and when the cops brought him into the precinct, they brought him up to the squad room with the where the cell was, the detention cell. 
And he was mouthing off with the cops, you know, this is not going to stick. That stuff that I was selling, I had prescriptions for. And, it, and he was just a big loudmouth. Nobody paid attention to him until he says to the detectives now in that room, what's up with you guys? You haven't locked up Joe Beef yet? And he points to the sketch. Oh, which they had hanging in the squad room for years in the same place, Tom, in the same location yeah. for years. And, and Marco says to him, says to them, what's wrong with you guys? How come you haven't locked up Joe beef yet? Yeah. Well, that gets someone's attention. They call in Tommy and Mike Galetta and he, they, he gets, gives them a statement and he tells them that he knew he knew Saponaro and he knew Joe Beef or Stasio. He knew that they were the ones who were responsible for, uh, for Chekhov's death because he'd been involved with them when they were planning this thing and talked about it afterwards. He wasn't an actual eyewitness. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Um, now, just one thing I skipped over I want to go back to. When, the, uh, when, the, when Tommy and Mike Galetta had gotten the case, they had the sketch, of course. So they went to the to the to the guy that was the was the guy who helped draw the he didn't draw it but he gave the information the witness he gave the information to the sketch artist. He owned this this particular individual owned a store in Bay Ridge, and when Tommy and Mike came in to talk to him about the sketch, he was very very reluctant to talk about it. Very reluctant. They finally got out of him that the reason of, for his reluctance was that a day or so after the murder and after he had done the sketch, some stranger, he called them, walked into his store. And I forgot what kind of store it was. Looked around. He had never seen the guy before. But as soon as he got a good look at him, he realized that that was the guy that he saw walking away from the murder scene. Uh-huh. It was Joe Beef. And... He said, listen, guys, he stood here in his store and did after he looked, pretended to look around, he just stared at me and stared. And then he walked out. Exactly. He said, I knew who it was. I wasn't going to come back into the PD and back into you guys and tell you anything. He said, that's why I, I haven't said anything more. OK, so now in Grio, Marco gives them what they what what he knows and they now have the ability to um, they have enough they believe to make an arrest okay but in Brooklyn the rule was that you couldn't make an arrest in a murder case unless the district attorney gave permission because the DA has to try the case and that was a, a rule that had been there before I got to the office and was still in in place and Tommy knew it Tommy Dades knew it he came so he came to me you know, he had touched base, I told you, way before, came back, and he said, Mike, 
here's what I got. And he tells me about Marco. He says, you got to, I, I, you know, can you go to the grand jury with what we, what we have? I said, Tommy, I can't convict him with this guy, particularly since he's a skelp, but I'll go to the grand jury and we'll present the case. Probably be able to get it uh, a murder indictment, but you guys have to promise me that you'll not stop looking at the case and investigating just because we we get if we get an indictment just because we get the indictment. They they were happy as happy as though they keep in mind the police commissioner gave them this job. It had taken them months to get to this point. Now they have somebody me who was willing to go out on a limb and indict this case so that we could get a uh, try to get a conviction, right? I, 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 afterwards, Tommy told me that the reason they came to me is because I had obviously developed the reputation that I was not the kind of guy who was afraid of going out on a limb and doing things. And, and I wasn't, and I did. And after that, I can't tell you how many of these cold cases Tommy Daves and I did and solved. So um, I indicted, I indicted Saponaro and Stasio. And um, I believe at the time, Stasio was, um, I think he might have been, I can't remember if he was in jail or, well, anyway, when they pick him up, um, he's in the back of the radio, in the back of the, of the squad car. And I don't think he was in jail, now that I think about it. And they tell him what he's being arrested for. He keeps his mouth shut. But then he says something, which I use later on at the trial. He says, um, how much time do you think I can get for this? Now, that's not a confession, but it's, it's coupled with all of the rest of this stuff. I mean, that's it was great. That's close. That's so that's that's close enough. Mom and dad, if I did do this, how long yeah. would I be grounded for? Exactly. Exactly. That's what he said. <laughs> so so make to uh, so now I, I get I'm getting ready with the, for the case. And um, and Tommy and Mike Galetta are out there now that they have Marco. They now know what underworld area they need to concentrate on to find other people. They first come to me with, <laughs> with a stockbroker who was friends with Chekhet. He knew the whole story of Chekhet's background. I, I would tell you his name, but quite frankly, Tom, it escapes me. I just can't remember, but I can describe him. He looked like the prototypical stockbroker. He lived in Bay Ridge, but he was a tall, handsome guy, blondish hair, and 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 he thought he was another guy who thought that, you know, his shit didn't stink. Yeah. Originally, originally he comes in and basically tells me to go fuck myself. He's not doing anything. He's not uh, he's not yeah, he says, You don't know, I'm not gonna buy I'm not giving you anything. And um and I said to him, you know. The one thing that I can't do to you is I can't lock you up for not helping me. Just don't say you're not obligated. Yeah. But what I can do, and I want you to keep this in the back of your mind, I can let the SEC know that um, you're hanging around on the streets with mobsters, people who are doing drugs, and um, and I'm not sure that your stockbroker's license will stay intact once I tell him that. And I promise you that I will. So he goes, fuck you, fuck you. He leaves my office with his lawyer. I said to myself in like five minutes, 
he's going to be back because I could tell that yeah. this had really touched the court. Well, I was off by a minute or two. His lawyer and he marched back into my office. Okay, we'll, we'll tell you what we know. And he does. And he tells us about Check It. That's how we really confirm that Check It was a, was a drug dealer. Marco had told us it, but it came from Marco. This guy told us about Check It selling drugs in, on Wall Street, selling drugs in Bay Ridge. He had a lot of information. But Tommy, I got to tell you, he was the biggest pain in the ass that I have ever encountered as a, as a prosecutor, as a witness. This guy, every time he told us something, it was, it was something that he, you know, we had to pull teeth. Until one, one night, he comes in to the office. He's again having second, third, fourth thoughts about doing this. Quite frankly, he knew what Checkit was doing. And he knew the mob guys were, were going to, you know, were, were, were going to be a problem for him if he told them what he knew. Yeah. He, didn't, he was afraid. He didn't want to die. And he felt that the mob guys were going to lock up, were going to kill him. But he was dealing with me. And I said to myself, Screw you! I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the SEC if you don't if you don't help me. He so finally came in one night, and he said, "You know, everything I told you is all bullshit. None of it's true. None of it what I, none of what I told you is true. And you know, but I'm gonna be on the street alone." And we tried to talk him out of it. Tommy, myself, I'm not, my, I had a colleague of mine working on the case with me, and all he was doing was basically whining how much he. Put on, he was putting us on the line, on and on and on, until finally it got to the point where I thought Tommy, the detective, was going to was going to hit him with a chair. I have it. It was just, <laughs> it was just such a pain in the ass. We finally said, I, I said to him, "Get the fuck out, get the fuck out." Certainly, I can't use you, but keep in mind, I'm going to the SEC. Yeah. So that was that was a good witness, except for the fact that he wouldn't testify. But he gave us a lot of, you know, a lot of intelligence, a lot of places where Tommy could 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 look for other other people. Right. So he finds he finds another guy, <laughs> a guy named Mikey Gattuso. Jesus Christ. And when Mikey Gattuso comes in and the reason that he was involved is because he had heard about Stasio and Sapinaro getting locked up. He was in jail at the same time and was looking to help himself out. And he knew that Sapinaro and Stasio were drug dealers and he was ready to, to talk, right? So we bring, <laughs> they bring in Mikey the Killer Gattuso. That's what he tells me his name is. <laughs> so I look at him and he comes in from jail. He's got a cane. The first thing I say to him is, why did they call you the killer? He said, because when I was a cat, when I was a kid, I used to kill cats. I said, that's why they call you the killer? You used to kill cats? He goes, yeah. I said, well, why the hell do you have that cane? And I'm, I'm going to use a word that um, I have to use because he said it to He's me. Quoting the story. Quoting the story. He said, I got the cane. I pretended I hurt my knee. So I have the cane so I could beat off all the niggas in jail. Yeah. That's what he said. Yeah. This was a guy who, who was out of central casting. I mean, he just, he was out of central casting. Um, but he had a lot of good information and he agreed to testify. So now I had Marco who agreed to testify. I had Mikey the killer 
And we had this, this other guy who's, who's, I only remember his first name being Jimmy. And he, what he was, is he was one of the runners for Gattuso and Sapinaro. He used to, they would come up with the drugs, someone who would buy it from them. He'd transport the, the, the purchase over to the buyer and bring back the money. And he knew that, that check it was cutting into their business. So, and he was there when they were planning, planning the killing. So he became an important witness. Again, I, I can't even begin to describe how unbelievably ugly this guy was. He was, he was tall. He had, he was, must've been like six two. He must've weighed about a hundred pounds. He had this, this ugly blondish hair. He was disheveled, but he was a guy who actually told us a lot more than I expected. So <laughs> I'll skip ahead a little bit. I tell I say, I prep him and I tell him when the case, when the trial starts, I want you to come dressed, not like that, but as if you were going to church. He goes, okay, Mr. V, I understand. I'll be here. Don't worry. So now we've got, we got everybody lined up, ready to start the case. So what do I have to do next? And that is, I have to sit down with the check it family because I'm going to, the whole motive for this murder is that he was a drug dealer. He was not, he may have been a good guy in in all the other ways, but he was a drug dealer. So I figure out, I got to know the family very well. And um, I started with his father. I figured, you know, man to man, I could talk to him. and, And I was surprised by something he said to me. When I told him what my plan was and how I was going to approach the case, he said, you know, so I knew there was something off with Chet. He says, I knew it. I had heard that it might be drugs from people in the neighborhood, but, you know, I knew there was something wrong. So I have no problem. If that's what you have to do to convict these people, then, you know, go ahead and do it. And what I was going to do is to argue that he was killed because he had, you know, he had, he had infiltrated, so to speak, this drug operation of these two wise guys, and they killed them to eliminate competition. So the next person I had to speak to was Mrs. Checkett, and I knew this was going to be a bit of a problem. She constantly called me during the trial, during the preparation, during the investigation. She was there when the, when after the arrest, when they were arraigned in, in criminal court, and after the indictment, she was in court when they were arraigned in Supreme Court. And um, I have to tell you, I sat her down and, and, and I had her, his sister with her. So that with, I had Chet's sister with it, with our mother and I broke the news to them. And she originally said to me, her first words were, that's not true. My Chet is, was not a drug dealer. And she wanted to tell me again about how wonderful he was and all of this stuff. And I said, Mrs. Checkett, I, I have more information than I need, more evidence than I need. And if I can't do this this way, there's no motive for the crime. This at least gives me an opportunity to, to convict these guys. So she says, my son was not a drug dealer. But if you have to say that, then you can go ahead and say it. I said, I have to say it because it's the truth. I mean, dealing with a mother at this point, Tom, is, was, 
You know, I, she was suggesting that I was going to lie and make this up. I, it was, I was not making it up. Yeah. Um, and so, you, and you but, can't even passively agree like, okay, I'll just say it. Like you have to be like, no, I have, it is what it is. Even if you agree exactly. with that, it's like, exactly. if there's a hot mic somewhere, this whole thing's thrown out. Yep. I, 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 so I, his sister, Chet's sister told mm-hmm. me that she understood as well. And she said basically that, you know, I'll, I'll take care of mom. So that was, I had, that was the toughest part of the case, quite frankly, <laughs> I have to tell you. Dealing, uh, having to tell Mrs. Checkett that, you know, I, this is what I had to do. Because, Tom, during the investigation and during the indictment and during all of that stuff, I never told her about the drug aspect. And I wasn't going to, to blow my case, you know, on talking to her about this. I never told the family about, you know, what I intended to do. And I never, you know, I never told them that if I didn't do it this way, I wouldn't be able to win the case. We had to do it this way. So... We did. We, we, we start the trial and, and we put, we put Marco on the stand and, um, and Marco was Marco. He was terrific. He really was, except for one thing that surprised us. We asked him, you know, how well he knew Stasio and Sapinara. And he told us that he knew them very well. That he also was a guy who was who was running for them. He was selling for them, and, and he happened to be around when they told him that they wanted to kill Check it because he was in the way. Then, out of nowhere, without even a question being asked, he said, "You know, Frankie Sapp. I got to tell you something about him. He's he's and he used the pejorative term. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, he's a faggot, mm-hmm. and uh, he doesn't. Nobody in in his crew knows that, but I know it." And you know how I know it? And now nobody's objecting, so we're letting it go. He said, he used to come over to my house or invite me over to his apartment, and he wanted to give me blowjobs. Mm-hmm. Now, we I almost fell off the chair I was on. I said, who wants to do that when it seems like it's more like the other way around where you want to force the guy who is your inferior to do it for you. No, it was the other way around. He put a gun to his head and he said to him, I, you know, I want to give you, you know, uh, or I want to give you oral sex. And Marco said on the stand, if I didn't let him do it, he was going to shoot me, kill me. That was um, that you should have seen the reaction of the jury time. They were, that's, Unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, kind of. Yeah, well, kind of tarnishing the whole all-American look. Yeah. Well, it was. Um, it was. Well, you know, Sapinaro was was a obviously a closeted um, gay man. Sure. Because in a mob, you have to be closeted; otherwise, it's you're going it's, to be it's, it's, in the coffin. Yeah, you got to be. Yeah, you got to be alpha. You got to right. be male. You got to. Right. Yeah. Right. So, but it wasn't enough. He you know, kind of reversed what I would think would be the traditional roles when somebody is going to force another person to perform sex. It was the other way. It would be it the other way It seemed like around. a power move, yeah. Exactly. And it's exactly what it was. So that was Marco. And he was terrific. He gave us everything he needed. He was, he, you know, he, he withstood cross-examination. Mikey Gattuso told us what he knew as well. And uh, Gattuso was believable because he was the, he played the role wasn't, it wasn't even a role when he was up on the stand telling them about his involvement in this drug operation. You know, it was, it was as if John Gotti was up there, you know, nobody had to 
sell them on the idea that this guy was was a was a, a wise guy who was a criminal <coughs> and would be involved with them. And he he had great great information. Now the mistake there was a, a very big mistake that was made during the course of of the the trial by the defense attorney. And that is um, we couldn't get the person who was responsible for the sketch artist rendition. He wouldn't come in. He was still frightened by that visit to his store back, um, you know, months or a year before. So we had no way of getting the sketch in. And Tommy, when I tell you that the sketch was almost a photograph of of Stasio, I was really upset because we tried and tried. I had no other way of getting it in because I couldn't, um, I could, he had to introduce the picture because it was his information that provided the sketch. And it wasn't good enough to call the sketch artist because that only, the sketch artist could only say, I drew a sketch of what this guy was telling me. I don't know who he is. Yeah. I had to get the guy in to say, he's the guy still coming from the car, right? But during Marco and Grio's testimony, the defense attorney made a big mistake. He asked about, he said, well, you know, you didn't give any information until, and this is how stupid he was, until years after that sketch was drawn. So Marco says, sketch, I don't know anything about a sketch. All I know is there was a sketch in a precinct and I pointed out to the cops that that was Joe Beef. The defense attorney had now opened the door to me to allow me to put the sketch into evidence. Nice. If he hadn't asked that question, then it never would have come into evidence. When I tried, when I it moved it into evidence, the defense attorney went nuts. Yeah. The, and here's the judge. The judge on the stand said, very simple, Mr. I forgot his last name, Mr. So-and-so, you opened the door. Why did you ask him a question about the sketch if he didn't want it in evidence? So now we had the sketch, right? We had Gattuso. We had in Grio, and now what was left was Jimmy. <laughs> so, so I'm sitting in my office. It's about 9 a.m. They bring him in. Now, remember what I told him. Dress the way you dress, go to church. He walks into my office, and I almost fell off my desk chair. He had on a lime green suit with the jacket was like a waiter's jacket come to his waist. The pants were skinny before skinny jeans and skinny pants were in. And more important, oh, he had a white ruffled shirt. That's exactly what I was imagining. So it's Dumb and Dumber mixed with My Cousin Vinny. With a a Western tie and the piece de resistance. His ugly blonde hair was now basically glued straight up on his head. Insanity play. <laughs> it gets better. It gets better. We call him. We bring him over. And first of all, I said to him, "Jimmy, what the hell? I told you to dress the way you go to church." He goes, "Mr. V, this is how I go to church. This is how I dress when I go to church." I can't right. argue with you. All right, you know, so I guess that's between him and the creator. You know, we bring him. We bring him over to the courtroom. Put him on a stand. And my colleague was questioning and he asks the first question, tell us, tell the jury what your name, your full name. And he tells them. And while he does that, he has his hands down on his, around on his lap and he's, he grabs his crotch and shakes it as he answers the question. 
So I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. I said, nah, this must be something. He said, so then the next question, tell us, you know, where you live. He gives her the answer, shakes again. So basically he's grabbing himself yeah. and shaking it as he's every ant. So five questions, five answers with him grabbing his crotch and shaking it as he's answering it to the jury. A jury is like, they're looking around at each other. I am, I can't You're hold in the laughter. So I get my colleague's attention. I say, ask for a recess. You got it. So he asked for a recess. The judge grants it. We take him in the back. And I say to him, Jimmy, what the fuck are you doing? You're grabbing your dick every time you ask an answer a question and you shake it. He goes, I do. I am. I said, yeah. What the hell are you doing? I was going to say, either a power move or it's an unconscious anxiety thing. Exactly. Exactly what it was. But you know what that, what not knowing about that, I had the guy in my office half a dozen times prepping him. He never did it. It was nerves. It was also nerves. So what I told him to do, I said, listen, here's what you do. Just sit on your hands, put them under your thighs and sit on your hands so that you don't do this. You're distracting the jury. You look like a fool. And I, you're an important witness to us. (laughs) So he, he does it. Thank God we got through, we got through the entire, um, through the entire testimony. It was, it was terrific. So the, I, can't, I forgot to say one other thing. Because of Stasio's statement, how much time can I get for this, which we put into evidence, which we wanted to put into evidence, because he said it, it can't come into evidence against the def- other defendant because that defendant would not have an opportunity to cross-examine him because he doesn't have to take the stand. So the solution was two juries. <clears throat> so the entire case was tried with two juries in the courtroom. When it came time at the end for me to put in the Stasio statement about how much time could I get, the other jury had to leave the courtroom. Then we asked, we put the detective on the stand. He told us what he said. And then we had a, then we brought them back for the remainder of the trial. And um, so I was the only guy summing up because um, my colleague who had tried the case with me had something he had to do in, in D.C. that day. And um, and he was a junior guy anyway. And I said, don't worry about it. So what did that leave for me? I had to compose and deliver two entire different summations to two juries on the same day. So... We did one, took a break for an hour, came back and did and did the other. And um, and we were fortunate. We were able to um, we were able to get, you know, conviction in both cases. It didn't take the juries very long to do it. And I'll end by telling you what happened in the in the hallway outside the courthouse, outside the courtroom. When I get outside. I all the family is congratulating me and um, Mrs. Checkett comes up and gives me this this big hug and then whispers in my ear my son was not a drug dealer to the end tom to the end i couldn't i i you know and i had it and i, I let me just interrupt one second yeah, sure, sure, sure. I had, before i summed up i had her again in my office and i said listen you may not want to come to the summations because this is what i'm going to say i'm going to argue that your son was a bad guy you understand that 
She said, my son was not a bad guy, but if you have to do that, then I'll be there. And she was, she sat through the entire thing. And, um, but she, but she held on to the end with that whisper in my ear. Um, I, I don't know what else to say, but I have to tell you that when I got this case, when Tommy first came in and I took it all and I took it, took the case with him, <clears throat> I don't know anything about, it. I'm not from Bay Ridge, so I didn't know anything about this, but the guys in my office, the people who worked for me and the detectives who worked as investigators for the DA's office, they all knew about the check, check, check it case because it was one of these mysteries that had 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 sat around Bay Ridge, and I'm sure that there was all kinds of talk all over the years about why Chet Checkett was killed and who killed him, and the mystery of the the selling of the car and the and the sketch and all this other stuff. <coughs> Excuse me. They all knew it. They said, "Oh man, you're gonna you got you're gonna do this." I said, "Yeah, I think we we have it." So so when it was over, my boss who lived in Bay Ridge. And who knew exactly what was going on? He knew about this for years that it had not been solved. He it, it made a hero out of him because he now could go home to his, you know, to the political clubs and the people out there. And and Mrs. Checkett was a very powerful force out there. Believe me, she was she had that you know that gift of gab, and she was she was very active in the community. So it was a um, it was a good way to um, you know to to. I hadn't been chief of of the homicide bureau very long either when I when I got the case. So it was um, it was it was good for me and it was good for for uh, for the DA. Tommy Dades and I went on from there to to solve several other cases, these cold cases. And um, in one case, I just give you. I know we're getting close to the, no, uh, no, to no, the time, fine. but in the uh, in one of the cases, we actually uh, we had heard that the, the killer had thrown the gun into a, a, a body of water in, uh, in Brooklyn called Coney Island Creek. And it was literally in Coney Island. But Tom, if you ever saw Coney Island Creek, you'd say, you'd say, what am I doing here without a gas mask, without a hazmat suit? It was as polluted a waterway as you could possibly imagine. And this is years later. And you know what? We sent the divers in, and guess what? Got it. They found the gun. Got it. They found the gun. So, so Dave's and I have had a, a very uh, interesting career together. We've done a lot of uh, a lot of stuff, and quite frankly, I spoke to him the other day. We're still trying to sell friends of the family to TV or to the movies because uh, he was involved with me in that case as well. You know, with the the mm-hmm. Epilito and Car- Cap- 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 Yeah, yeah. So we said, you know, Mike. Doing writing now, he said, you know, what would be a great book, our story, you know, you and me and what we did and all the adventures we had and stuff. And it's true. So I, I may I may very well think about that um, after I finish. By the way, I got to tell you, I'm halfway through the new book about the devil uh-huh. coming to Brooklyn. And oh, and um, yeah, so and I have a um, and I have a deal I got the, since I last spoke to you. Oh, I've so, got a so, interested. Yeah. All right. Yeah, so, you, you were unsure about that last time. I wasn't, but I I, I have Told one you. now. And uh, Told you, lean into yeah, it. Yeah, and the publisher, wants, the publisher wants to make it a three-book deal. So, you know, so I'm, we'll see. So anyway, that's um, Hell yeah. that's the story of Chester Chet Checkett and, um, and, his, um, and his mom and uh, Stasio Sapinaro and, um, and the uh, 
the likes witnesses the likes of which you've never you've never encountered uh it's it, it's unbelievable you know Gattuso, mikey the killer became a, a really a, a big informant for my office later on for the for for the rackets division before i became involved with rackets and um and what he was doing was he lived in a he was being kept in a safe house because he was a witness for a rackets case and it, and until they had to throw him out you know why he was selling untaxed cigarettes out of the the DA's office state safe house to to wise guys this is yeah. this is the kind of people that you know were that uh, that we had to deal with when we were doing these cases so um what I, what I want to say about the mother's line, though, it's, you know, when she's saying, if you have to say that and you're going, it's not that if I have to, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of talking, you know, you're 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 not saying what needs to be said. You're, you're kind of saying like, yeah, look, I, I fucking know, like, whatever, I'll go along with it, too. But what you're outwardly saying is, no, he was a drug dealer. I have to because it's it's a you know, it's an airtight case. Exactly but I would right. imagine in your mind, you're probably saying, yeah, you know, if in a perfect world, you would pause time and, and look at her just to comfort the mom and say, OK, fine. Yeah, he wasn't a drug dealer, but I have to say this. But you can't say that out loud. To me, it's almost the same thing is she is saying in her mind, she probably knows. But to her, it's almost like it's an airtight case with her deceased son, like a mother's love. It got yeah. it. it the, that love got it's like. And that's a weird analogy. It's like that's what made this all happen was her never giving up in that persistence, exactly. which is driven by exactly. love. I can imagine in her mind, it's I'm not going to give up on the one yard line now. We just did it all. I'm not about to say, and my son's a drug. She probably knows deep in there. She can't bring herself to say. I agree with you. I agree with you. There, were, there was too much evidence. I mean, if you heard yeah, my summation. Yeah, yeah, No, she doesn't sound like a stupid woman. Put it woman. together. It's, yeah. And, listen. Um, and she listened to all the witnesses. She heard them all, you know. Yeah. It, I mean, it's, um, I mean, yeah. If that was me, if I was, if I was Chet, yeah, my, my dad would probably be like, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. And my mom would probably deep down know. But no, she would never say it. And it's just, I think that's just, that love is what got the case eventually solved. Exactly. It's you know, not going to stop now. Yeah. Why I believe that this is a was one of the most important things I ever did when I was there is because of Mrs. Uh, Checkin, yeah. because that she never ever gave up yeah. trying to get the authorities yeah. to look at the case and look what happened, Tom. Yeah, they yeah. did. They got it, and 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 that was it. And and she was able to uh, you know to get some closure and get peace. And um, and to her, she could you know I don't know, I don't even know if she's still around. But um, I'm sure she, if she isn't, she went to a grave thinking that um, in her heart of hearts, she might have kind of come to grips with it. But I don't think she did. I think that um, maybe not, but maybe not. I, but it's that that might almost be like an acceptable margin of error. If that love is yeah, what yeah, solved the yeah. cold case. Fuck it. Who cares? It was. Like, and let me tell you something, Tom, sure. this when you when I talk about cold case. This was ice cold. I mean, this was the detective who had it back when he, when the murder occurred was not even around anymore. Yeah. The detectives were all gone. So this was two detectives, Tommy and Mike, Mike uh, Galetta, who knew nothing about the case and started from scratch and, um, and made it, you know, yeah. we made it. So, um, 
Yeah. And and they promised me that they would continue working, and they did. And they came up with, you know, three other witnesses, and um, that's what did it for us. You know, when and I argued, one of the things they did argue in summation is that every one of the witnesses was bad, as I have described for you, in terms of the street. They were the street. They were on the street. They were all had problems. I said to them, but you know what they are? They are the perfect witnesses to tell you about two wise guy drug dealers because not because they're looking at it from afar, but because they're right there. They're into it. They know it. This is, these, these are the best recorders of this history and telling you because they lived it and are living it is the way that, why you should believe them. And, um, and it, it worked, you know, it worked. Yeah. So it's the cold case and the, the mother's yeah. the mother's warm loving heart. cold case warm heart but sure, but that's that's what it is so i mean exactly. I, I don't yeah. i don't blame i mean fuck who cares and, and you can't discount the sketch the mistake that the defense attorney made when i tell you photograph it was as close to a photograph as you could possibly get it was great but think about this and i always think about i thought about it when you when we decided that we were going to talk about this i thought back to what it must have been like that day when this guy, when Marco was in that cell and he was looking around the room, he was giving the cops a hard time. And then he figures I'll give them a hard time about Joe beef. The sketch was there for, for years on that bulletin board. No one probably gave it a second yeah. thought or a third thought or a fourth thought. Yeah. What are the odds of that happening? It, it was to me, it was, um, it was almost like, uh, you know, it was, destined yeah. to uh to be done because um and mrs checkett i think had a lot to do with that her I was her gonna say miss checkett was her, her, her she was the lock yeah, pick yeah. she was the lock pick and there were all these pins exactly. inside of the lock there were all these witnesses sketches and she just kept pushing the lock pick over the years and it kept yep. hitting the pins one by one and it finally unlocks the door and then someone tells her Hey, uh, that door wasn't locked. Of course, she's going to say, "Fuck you!" It was locked, right? You know, it's it's exactly take, very good analogy. Yeah, That's very good. Take yeah. The, yeah, take the win, right? Take the who cares? Who cares? Exactly. Take the win. Well, it was um, it was a great case. It was a great case. I've, I've never I've never put it down on paper in terms of writing it as a short story, which I will do at some point. But um, but I and, and I and I I really um, am happy that I was involved because it, it gave me satisfaction too. You know, yeah. it was, um, it was the kind of thing that became sort of a quest for a bunch of people, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, for different reasons, Mrs. Checkett, and then the two detectives who were trying to not make their bones, but, but show the new police they commissioner it, that yeah. they, you know, they could do it. And, um, and then the DA who, you know, reaped the benefit of it because it was his neighborhood and, he could go home and uh, and feel yeah. proud about what his office did, you know. So yeah. it was um, it was a good thing. So, but thank you for letting me tell the story. It was yeah. um, yeah, no, it was fine. You're fine. Um, but yeah, I gotta run real quick. I'm uh, gotta do the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing because I don't know how to stop. But okay. Mike Vecchione, all the books in the description, links to everything, all the good stuff. Obviously, as always, I'll text you. We'll set up the next episode and uh, do make. I will also text you about the sketch guy. I would love to have on a a, a criminal su- sketch suspect. You know what I'm saying? And uh, yes, sketch artist, sketch artist. I'm losing my mind. I need to sleep tonight. Um, Mike Vecchione, thank you so much, sir.
Much love, brother. Thank you for coming on. Hey, I'll send you a text. Thanks, so. All right, man. Have a good. Thank you so much. You as well. Recording God bless everybody. Stopped. Stay safe.